Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict iron jaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That that way. Way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your friendly alien host, Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode includes undead killers, creepy crawlers, and organ thieves. This is the hundredth episode of the podcast. So ye have something special planned. Well, spoiler beard, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't think of anything. Oh, that's okay, lad. Here's a blanket spoiler warning for the episode. Skip sections you don't want spoiled. Yar! Be sure to listen all the way through to the end of the episode for an important update. Join me on a quest to locate some suicidal priest's grave. We'll have plenty of time to talk about horror movies in the car. Number 1, Plan 9 from Outer Space, 1957, directed by Ed Wood. Aliens start raising the dead since the people of Earth refuse to acknowledge that they exist. A man and his wife that died of natural causes are brought back from the dead. They kill a sheriff who's also brought back. The police, military, and a pilot try to figure out what's happening. They find the alien ship and enter it. The aliens explain that the Earthlings will eventually create a bomb that will destroy the universe. They're trying to stop that from happening. The humans defeat the aliens and continue making bombs. Aliens and the undead they raised are the killers. The human race are also killers and are probably going to blow up everything with a solaronite bomb, but they technically kill the aliens out of self-defense since the aliens were trying to destroy Earth. The aliens didn't want to destroy Earth, but since the human race refused to be diplomatic and is completely self-destructive, the aliens knew it was either Earth or the entire universe. I was rooting for the aliens. Years ago, I watched Tim Burton's Ed Wood movie. I decided I would check out at least one of Ed Wood's movies after watching it and have finally seen Plan 9 from Outer Space. It has everything. Bella Lugosi, flying saucers, high fashion aliens, dumb human pilots, stock footage of the military, zombie vampire, a giant wrestler, and outside wicker furniture. I ended up watching the colorized version since it could be used for my blood and bone watch party. The added color didn't add anything to the movie. When black and white footage is colorized, it's almost always off just enough to look peculiar. The movie is called Plan 9 from Outer Space. Well, it was originally titled Grave Robbers from Outer Space, but ended up being called Plan 9 from Outer Space because the aliens are on their ninth plan to get the Earth to recognize them. Plan 9 being resurrecting the dead. I don't know how terrible the other eight plans were, but if Plan 9 is any indication, they were probably equally as stupid. We will now enact Plan 5. 
All dogs on Earth will let out a very quick meow before returning to their barking nature. This will surely get the humans to notice and respect us. Plan 9 from Outer Space is a weird movie to talk about since all I want to do is recommend you watch it, then watch Tim Burton's Edward movie. It's a perfect double feature. The Burton movie provides a ton of information on how Plan 9 came to be. It talks about Ed's struggles, his friendship with Bela Lugosi, and the events that led to the creation of the first big So Bad It's Good movie. Plan 9 from Outer Space is credited as Bela Lugosi's last film. He passed away before its conception, but before his passing, Lugosi and Wood shot a bunch of random stuff for other projects that was then used for Plan 9. Ed Wood's future wife's chiropractor was brought on as a stand-in for Lugosi. It's obvious that he isn't the OG Dracula, even though he's covering his face with a cape at all times. The chiropractor was a fake shemp, a new term I just learned about. It's a person that takes over for another actor who's no longer willing or able to play a role. Another example of fake shemps are the two actors that helped complete Game of Death after Bruce Lee's passing. The term was coined by Sam Raimi after the stand-ins that were used to complete original Three Stooges films that Shemp Howard was already committed to before passing away. I've ended up talking about fake Shemp's way too much. Plan 9 from Outer Space is a fun time. It's not a good movie, but it's packed with heart and charm. I highly recommend the Plan 9 from Outer Space, followed by Tim Burton's Ed Wood double feature. Number 2, Laid to Rest, 2009, directed by Robert Green Hall. A girl suffering from a head injury wakes up in a coffin. A man with a chrome skull mask is trying to kill her. She escapes and runs into locals. She decides to be called Princess since she can't remember who she is. Almost everyone she meets ends up dead. The man with the chrome skull is eventually taken out after he attempts to reapply his mask with glue that was changed out for medical grade glue which somehow destroys his face. Princess bashes in his face to make sure he's dead. She then gets in a car with the only other survivor and heads for Atlanta. The man with the chrome skull face is the killer. If you go into late to rest without reading the synopsis, you're going to be confused as to what exactly is going on with the main character. She pops out of a coffin not knowing where she is and just seems like a really dumb person. It's easy not to put two and two together, even after the movie shows you she has a head wound. The self-titled protagonist, Princess, is suffering from a head injury. That's why she never seems to know what's going on. Is that also why she makes a ton of terrible decisions that get a bunch of people killed? Maybe. There are great characters in the movie that want to help Princess. Tucker, his wife Cindy, and the town nerd, Steven. All of these characters end up dead. Cindy's death isn't on Princess's hands, but I would say it's mostly her fault that Tucker and Steven die. Princess throws caution to the wind. At one point, she even decides to approach the killer without a weapon or a plan. She acts like someone suffering from a massive head injury. It's eventually revealed that Princess is a prostitute with a criminal record. Tucker and Steven decide not to tell Princess her true identity for some reason. The killer solicited her, then bonked her on the back of the head with an aluminum baseball bat. Princess did not deserve a bludgeoning. There are a lot of plot conveniences in Laid to Rest. Tucker's car has barely any gas. 
His and Cindy's phone was recently disconnected. No one has a cell phone. Steven's mom's car can't go above 40 miles per hour since his mom was a speed demon in her old age. Speaking of Steven's mom, she's dead. The killer turns her into a makeshift puppet by planting his knife into the back of her head to play a hilarious prank on Steven. Chrome Skull is such a rascal. A rarity that's really nice in Laid to Rest is the fact that neither Tucker or Steven try to get with Princess. They're all just buddies. It's great. This section so far is probably not selling you on Laid to Rest. It's actually pretty good. Why? The kills. The kills in Laid to Rest are gnarly, practical, and brutal. Robert Green Hall, the director, was mainly a special effects artist, which makes complete sense. Late to Rest has some of the most brutal and gratuitous kills I've ever seen. Gratuitous is normally a bad thing, but when you're talking about kills in a slasher, the more gratuitous they are, the better. There is a lot of head and face destruction. There are also a lot of lady corpses since Chrome Skull was in the middle of making some type of grotesque art project. All of the gore and makeup effects look incredible. The acting isn't great. There are some recognizable faces. Lena Headey played Cindy. It was weird seeing her play a non-villain with a southern accent. Kevin Gage played Tucker. He was in Con Air. Sean Whalen played Steven. You've probably seen him in stuff. He looks like a knockoff Steve Buscemi. He'd fit right in at a McPoyle family reunion. A bunch of stock sounds are used in Laid to Rest, which are unintentionally comedic. The music was done by Deadbox and Suicidal Tendencies. Deadbox created the best song of all time for Laid to Rest titled Sexy Bitches, in which the hook states, Sexy bitches are my favorite kind of bitches. A true work of art. Laid to Rest does have its pacing issues. The kills are fast and furious in the first 30 minutes then disappear for a long time. Still, Laid to Rest is a solid 2000 slasher that should be checked out by fans of the genre. It doesn't matter that it makes no sense that Chrome Skull is somehow killed by glue that melted his face off, or he ripped his own face off. I looked up the glue that defeated him and it doesn't melt faces. Number 3, City of the Living Dead, 1980, directed by Lucio Fulci. After a priest hangs himself in a cemetery, people start dying and the dead start walking the earth. A crack team, including a journalist, psychic, psychiatrist, a normal girl, and her brother, attempt to get to the bottom of things. The priest's tomb is found and the day is saved after the psychiatrist stabs the priest in the dick with a giant wooden cross. Only the psychiatrist and the psychic survive. Well, and the little brother who runs towards them, causing the psychic to scream. An undead priest, the undead his death caused to rise from the grave, and some girl's dad are the killers. Some girl's dad thinks Bob, the town pervert, has been killing people, so the dead brutally kills Bob with a drill. I wanted to do my part to spread the word of the godfather of gore, Lucio Fulci, so I made my blood and bone viewers watch City of the Living Dead. I promised gross, practical gore, and also assumed there would be at least a little eye destruction. The latter wasn't included, but the former definitely was. 
The best moment gore-wise has to be when a girl throws up all of her insides. What's more fun than seeing that? People having chunks of their brains ripped out straight from the back of their heads was also a great time. The undead must be insanely strong to be able to crush skulls and snatch brain goop with a single grab. Lots of people fell to this deadly technique. It happens at least three times. Somehow it's fun to see every time even though each brain squished death is practically identical. Other notable gore includes a bitten hand and a goopy worm-covered baby corpse that the town pervert Bob sees in the corner of a room after his magic blow-up doll self-inflates. The baby corpse is never brought up again. The fate of the blow-up doll is also unknown. Other oddities include the howls of night monkeys and a maggot storm. Hey, can you add some spooky sounds to these night scenes for me? Sure, I have some jungle sounds. That'll work, right? The maggot storm is absolutely disgusting, but it goes on for so long that it becomes hilarious. Maggots were glued to actors' faces as they stood in a room that had an absurd amount of maggots pumped into it. They appeared to be alive. Turns out 22 pounds of living maggots were blown all over with the help of two wind machines. I wonder if all the actors that were going to be sprayed with maggots knew about it before signing on. How many eye close-ups and zoom-ins on eyes should you have in a movie? Well, if your movie happens to be City of the Living Dead, the answer is as many as you can possibly cram in there. The eye shots are used so much that it seems like a purposeful gag. These types of zooms are prevalent in old Italian horror movies, but they're taken to the next level here. Having the hanged priest show up all over the place still hanging was a nice creepy touch. It could be genuinely unsettling if used in a less ridiculous movie. Like in a movie where the main supernatural evil villain isn't defeated by having a giant wooden cross jammed into his dick. The decision to have the dick stab over something like a heart or brain stab is puzzling, but hilarious. City of the Living Dead is a much more enjoyable viewing experience than Fulci's zombie. Sure, there aren't scenes where a zombie fights a shark and a woman's eyeball gets intimate with a jagged piece of wood, but City flows a lot better. That's not to say that the pacing is perfect. There are a couple drawn-out stretches where Nothing of note happens, but ridiculous events and gory action happen often enough. One of the strangest moments in the movie is when Bob the pervert is murdered with a giant drill by some dad. It seemed definite that one of Bobby's eyeballs was going to be the point of entry for the spinning metal death machine, but it ended up entering through one of his cheeks and exiting through the other instead. The weird part is that it's just a murder. That dad murders Bob on a hunch. In order to stop the hanged priest's curse from opening the gates of hell, his grave needed to be found before All Saints Day. It's All Saints Day Eve, and the journalists and psychic are at the graveyard looking for the priest's resting place. They then bump into the psychologist and normal girl. Instead of explaining what they are on a mission to do at the cemetery, they leave the area, tell the others what needs to be done, and then goof off for hours. 
It's like this group of idiots doesn't even care that the gates of hell are about to be opened. City of the Living Dead is a great time. Consider checking this one out with a group of friends. I almost forgot that Michele Suave plays a dude that's killed and comes back as a zombie. He's been in and made a bunch of great Italian horror like Demons and Stage Fright. Number 4, Ticks, 1993, directed by Tony Randell. A group of troubled teens go to stay at a cabin in the woods with two chaperones. A local man accidentally created mutant ticks. The ticks start killing people. There is also a duo that is growing weed. The duo kill a sheriff and try to kill one of the teens named Panic. Panic makes it back to the cabin and lets everyone know the weed duo are responsible for the state he's in right before he dies. A giant tick then bursts out of Panic. The weed duo ends up dead and the rest of the teens and their chaperones make it out alive. The weed duo and mutant ticks are the killers. We all know that Seth Green is one of the greatest actors of our generation. Idle Hands, The It television movie, Josie and the Pussycats, Austin Powers, Can't Hardly Wait, Rat Race, he even does all those voices in Robot Chicken. Okay, maybe greatest actor of our generation is a bit of a stretch, but the guy is likable and has been in some fun stuff. I had just injected a few Seth Green movies into my eyeballs and needed more. Head on over to IMBD and what do I see? A horror movie featuring Seth Green. Ticks. Ticks is a movie that's been on my radar for a while. I had been holding off on it because I assumed it was going to be pretty terrible. My assumption was correct, but after finally watching it, I can also confirm that it has some good stuff in it. Like Alfonso Ribeiro, who's best known for playing Carlton in The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, being cast as a thug named Panic. Maybe if he wasn't Carlton first and foremost in my mind, I'd be able to take him seriously as a character hardened by the streets, but all I see is a goofy guy dancing in a sweater when I look at him. It doesn't help that the second he's introduced, he says he's going to stab Seth Green's character if Green doesn't make a basketball shot. It's an incredibly bizarre scene that would barely make sense in a wacky comedy. Pet warning, Panic has a cool dog named Brutus who's killed by ticks. The effects work in ticks is fantastic, so the pooch's death is more disturbing than usual. A hamster also bites the dust after being eaten by a tick. The effects work is where ticks really shines. The ticks and their movement looks really good. The ticks scuttle about. Given that this is a low-budget horror movie, it wouldn't be a stretch to assume the tiny little creatures would be awful rubber monstrosities that are pulled around with fishing line. This might have been done for some shots, but it looks like the majority, if not all, of the ticks had at least some articulation. So there are spindly little legs that move. What else? Some of the ticks were filled with disgusting goop that would gush out when they were stepped on. It's great and a nice time. It would have been easy for the special effects team to put a little pool of goop under a tick that would splash out, but the team on ticks went all in. They even decided to create a giant tick that tears itself out of Carlton. At the point where the giant tick makes its appearance, the movie had become a slog. It definitely helped wake me up a bit. Before the giant tick makes itself known, the movie switched from being a killer tick movie to a killer weed farmer movie, which was much less interesting. Turns out special effects creator Doug Beswick had written the movie and been sitting on it for a long time. 
That must be why the effects work looks so amazing. I'd love to see some behind the scenes stuff showing the effects work of Tix. Tix is similar to Sleepaway Camp 3. A group of misfit kids end up in the wilderness to become better people. A big difference between the movies is that almost all of the teens and chaperones survive in Tix. You'd expect there to be one, maybe two survivors at the end of a movie about killer Tix, but only one character in the main group dies. Panic. The only black character. Dang. Besides Seth Green and Carlton, another familiar face is Clint Howard. He played the dude that ends up accidentally mutating the ticks, and has the grossest death in the movie after being attacked by them. Ticks is a special effects showcase attached to a mediocre plot with characters that aren't fully utilized. It's still worth seeing the effects work, but isn't a movie you should give your full attention to. Number 5, 12 Hour Shift 2020, directed by Bria Grant. A nurse named Mandy has the craziest 12 hour shift of all time. She gives some black market organs to her cousin Regina, who loses them. Regina needs a kidney if she doesn't want to die, so she starts killing people trying to get one. Mandy has been killing people for organs and kills the guy to try and help out Regina. Regina loses the new kidney. A goon sent by the man that Regina was supposed to give the organs to kills a cop. A convict that attempted suicide escapes and kills people. Somehow Regina is able to escape and Mandy isn't found out by the police. Mandy, Regina, a goon, and an escaped convict are the killers. Mandy's coworker Karen is also in on the organ operation, but she doesn't kill anyone in the movie. Now that I've seen 12 Hour Shift, it's not really a horror movie. It's more of a black comedy. People are killed, but the kills aren't presented in a horror movie fashion. Crime, thriller, black comedy. That's the genre. That doesn't mean it doesn't have a tiny pinch of horror. David Arquette played a convicted murderer that escapes. He's scary for two seconds. Then his character is just funny. A great gag in the movie is everyone ignoring his character once he's loose. There's a lot going on, Mr. Arquette. We don't have time to deal with you right now. Maybe David would have been scarier if he was the only psycho in Shift. Mandy's cousin Regina ends up being scarier than David because she starts killing and maiming people all willy-nilly. She pours bleach down an old guy's throat since Mandy tells her she uses bleach to inconspicuously kill patients. Mandy should have been a bit more specific since Regina is dumb as rocks. Mandy didn't tell Regina to kill anyone with bleach though, so there was no reason to go into detail regarding the method. Regina then stabs a random skater boy to death. She attempts to smother an old lady with the pillow and also smacks a nurse upside the head with the metal tray. But luckily for those two, they aren't added to Regina's kill count. Mandy kills a patient with no family to get Regina a new kidney since she misplaced the original bag of organs she was given. A cop walks in on a covered-in-blood Mandy in the morgue, but since cops are really stupid, he doesn't think anything of it. Nurses harvest organs from deceased patients after throwing their corpses on the floor, right? That's totally normal. 12-hour shift is one step away from reality. It has a level of surrealness that allows your brain to accept the things happening in the world it sets up. Of course, one of the dumbest people you could find would be given an important organ transporter job. That dumb person can also easily get away with murder and infiltration just by wearing a nurse uniform. 
This all sounds ridiculous, and it is, but it works. The acting in 12 Hour Shift is a mixed bag. Angela Bettis, probably best known for playing the title character in a movie called May, played Mandy. Huh, you remove the N-D, and her name is May. I wonder if that was done on purpose. Bettis is great and gives the most solid performance in the movie. Chloe Farnworth played Regina. She's good. Regina is such a wacky character, and Farnworth somehow makes Regina feel about as real as she can possibly be. Almost everyone else is a bit off. David Arquette is ridiculous as the murderer. Mick Foley randomly pops up as the leader of a shady organization. He... He attempted to act. He didn't even use a sock puppet. There are spots of dialogue that are overwritten and awkward. For example, the whole conversation Mandy has with her coworker right at the beginning, which is really the coworker just vomiting words at Mandy. An interesting aspect of 12 Hour Shift is the score. The score plays a big role in the movie. It makes what's happening feel like an opera. That's a weird thing to say, but if you watch the movie, I think it'll make sense. 12 Hour Shift is a unique watch. It's entertaining and full of twists and turns. I liked it quite a bit. Check this one out. Number 6, Spiral, 2021, directed by Darren Lynn Bozeman. A cop named Zeke that's against police corruption is trying to figure out who the new Jigsaw copycat is. He's assigned a rookie partner, and while they and the department look for the killer, more cops are killed. Zeke's dad was also a cop. The Jigsaw copycat finally reveals himself. It's the rookie who decided to become the new Jigsaw after his dad was murdered by a cop to keep him from taking the witness stand. Rookie tells Zeke he wants him to join him, but he has to let his cop dad die. Zeke attempts to help his dad, but the rookie set it up so cop dad would look like he was going to shoot when a SWAT team shows up. The SWAT team kills Zeke's dad, and the rookie gets away. Cops and the rookie are the killers. When I first heard about a new movie called Spiral, I was excited. I've read and enjoyed Uzumaki. Unfortunately, Spiral is just another movie in the Saw series. I attempted to watch the whole series before seeing Spiral, but I got bored. Spiral is a weird movie. It feels like a parody of Saw and every cop movie ever. You have the loose cannon cop that doesn't want a partner who hates the system. That's Zeke, played by Chris Rock. Chris Rock's performance as Zeke is mostly a bunch of yelling and hilarious reactions. His performance is very easy to compare to Nicolas Cage. Zeke is constantly shouting at all his coworkers about how they're crooked, awful cops. He's not wrong. But he's also an awful crooked cop. He needs some information from a guy, but instead of just knocking on his door and asking him, Zeke bursts in, which causes the guy to break his leg. Logistically, this shouldn't be possible from what's shown in the movie, but whatever. Then, when the guy won't tell him what he wants to know, Zeke pours liquor from a glass bottle on the guy's bone that's protruding from his leg. And when that's not enough to get him talking, he bashes the broken leg with a bottle. Needless to say, I was not rooting for Zeke, who comes off as just another bad cop. A cab, yada yada. The closest thing to a character to root for in the movie is the Jigsaw copycat. But new Jigsaw isn't only killing cops that have killed people, he also kills cops that lie. Lying is bad and all, but lying shouldn't be punishable by death. Like all the other Saw movies, the victims in the traps could allegedly escape, 
by following certain directions. Thing is, there are no trap survivors in Spiral. You need to have at least one person survive to prove that the traps weren't rigged. A lot of the traps seemed rather inescapable. One has a cop have to bite down on a device to rip off his fingers in order to escape a tub of water that will electrocute him once it fills to a certain point. The cop goes right into biting down on the device. He takes a very brief pause, then continues. Even if he bit down right away and didn't ever stop, there didn't appear to be enough time for him to rip his fingers off and escape. The gore in the movie is practical and well done, but gore alone doesn't make for a good movie. The twist that the rookie is the new Jigsaw is obvious. It's easy to guess it's the rookie the second they appear on screen, and very early on the rookie asks Zeke if they can borrow his phone, which cements the fact that the rookie is the new Jigsaw killer. Spiral tries to be cheeky and dissuade you from thinking it's the rookie by having Zeke receive a box with a patch of skin that appears to have the rookie's tattoo on it, but it's obvious once Spiral shows the person that's supposed to be the rookie completely skinned that they are in fact not the rookie. Darren Lynn Bozeman does a much better job directing Spiral than the other Saw movies he's worked on, but Spiral does keep the terrible editing choice where a bunch of different shots of a character are shown whenever they are in a trap. The acting besides Chris Rocks isn't great. Samuel Jackson plays Zeke's dad. He gave a really generic performance. Something hilarious in Spiral is the flashback makeup. To make the characters look younger, they just slapped more facial hair on them. Rock was given a ridiculous-looking full goatee, and Jackson was given a big silly mustache. It's great. Spiral is a weird parody movie trapped in a new, more serious take on Saw. It's not a good movie, but it is entertaining. Consider checking it out if you have at least some knowledge of the other Saws. Number 7, Evil 2019 Onwards, created by Michelle and Robert King. Evil was recommended to me recently, so I checked it out and almost bailed during the first episode. Why? Because it had a lot of hokey religious talk. Unlike Conjuring 3, Evil doesn't say it's based on a true story, so I can laugh at the silly idea that the devil is making people do bad things instead of getting mad. Evil is about a trio of characters debunking supernatural events. Sometimes the events can't be explained, but most of the time there is a completely normal and scientific explanation. The team is made up of two skeptics, Kristen and Ben the Magnificent, and a believer on the path to becoming a priest named David. David is annoying and dumb, but the other characters are a lot of fun. Something awful will be happening and Kristen and Ben are trying their best to help, while David is praying or shouting the Lord's Prayer or taking mushrooms to try to hallucinate. Seriously, media that wants to have religion defeat evils? You have to stop using the Lord's Prayer. If you really want to use it, at least have it done in Latin or something. Besides the main trio, there are also some amazing side characters. Kristen's wonderful mother, Christine, and a guy that might be a demon or at least has demonic powers named Leland. Christine is a grandma that loves wearing leopard print clothing and going out clubbing every night. Leland is an evil nerd. Of course, Christine and Leland end up hooking up. Other characters? Well, Christine has four kids. Yeah, four. Jeez Louise, that's a lot of kids. At least her husband helps her watch them, right? 
right? Nope, her husband is off helping people climb Mount Everest. He's not even a Sherpa, just some douchebag. Eventually, Mountain Husband comes back home and... He's ugly. Come on, Kristen, leave this jabroni and date priest man who's obviously not going to be able to finish preschool. Why can't priests have wives or husbands? Catholicism is whack. My own headcanon is that Dave and Leland are roommates. This is mainly based on a scene where Dave is investigating a vision he had after taking mushrooms, while Leland is directly behind him spouting baloney in his ears. It's really funny. Whoever is writing evil needs to do some more research when it comes to things like 4chan and deepfakes. There's a whole plot point where Kristen records Leland saying some heinous stuff, as he does. She plays back the recording and a lot of what he said can't be heard on it, so she goes to Ben who just deepfakes in what was missing. It's not how deepfaking voices works. You need tons of recordings of a person's voice to make a believable deepfake of it, not a minute recorded on a phone. A lot of stuff happening in Evil is goofy, but it's fun and entertaining. Going after the hierarchy of demons, I'm here for that. The show is incredibly stupid, but sometimes all you want is some junk food media. I'm going to start season two soon, and thank goodness the stupid incel plot was dropped. That's a wrap on Blank is the Killer 100, Undead Killers, Creepy Crawlers, and Organ Thieves. Thanks for hanging out and listening to 100 Dang Episodes. If you like what you heard, consider leaving a rating or review on iTunes. Since I started the podcast, I've never taken a break. I didn't let vacations or film festivals or anything get in the way of releasing new episodes. That said, I'm a wee bit burnt out, so now that I've dropped 100 episodes, I'm going to take a little break. My current plan is to be back with Pumpkin Harvest 4 and new episodes in October. There will probably be a second live episode that month also. Moving forward, I'm also going to give myself more breaks and consider changing the format. I don't know how much I'll shake things up if at all. While the podcast is on hiatus, I'm still going to watch a ton of horror movies. Well, maybe a little less than usual, but I will talk about all the movies I see on a weekly Twitch stream at twitch.tv slash bonesawbaker. I plan on making a short announcement episode when I decide which day and what time that'll be happening. I'm also going to continue doing Blood and Bone, my weekly horror movie watch party, every Monday night at 7 p.m. Central Time at that Twitch channel. Instead of ending the episode with something silly like I usually do, I'm just going to say thank you to all you listeners that gave me the strength to pump out 100 episodes. I couldn't have done it without you, and it means a lot to me.